Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series at the Abbey, and writer David Ireland. David sat down with me on the morning after the Irish premiere of his play Cypress Avenue, and he spoke about the cliché of the long-distance writer, the shock of being called Irish, and how in the past Dublin was a foreign country. David spoke about standing by his play and having faith in his words. I jump-cut a few of these words to avoid the odd spoiler along the way. But silence is okay. Enjoy the silence. Enjoy this podcast. So, welcome, David Ireland. Hello. Um, it's the day after the opening of your play, Cypress yes, Avenue, yeah. which just opened on the Peacock stage. It's a play that you've lived with for four years. Yeah. So what did you see in that play last night? Um, <laughs> it was uh, a very unusual experience for me. Very unusual. It was... Um, I, I felt... I felt like... For the first time ever, I really enjoyed watching a play of mine. I normally hate watching my own plays, particularly in press nights, because I can ju- all I can see is the mistakes I've made. And I have made mistakes with this play, but it was, it was, I sort of had this, this experience halfway through it, where I, 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 I suddenly had this thought, I wrote this play. <laughs> Which I'd never. I sort of, when it began, I sort of detached from it a little bit. And then halfway through, I went, oh God, I wrote this play. And, and I got, I felt like everybody in the audience hated it. You know, I felt like everybody. What gave you that indication? Well, people weren't reacting the way I expected them to react. But I, I, I wasn't, um, I found it late. I mean, just judging by the response afterwards, people were very enthusiastic about it. So, so I was wrong. But I was convinced that everybody in the audience hated it, but it didn't bother me. And you know, like there was a lot of, like Tom Murphy was there, and, and Thomas Kilroy, and Frank McGuinness, and Sebastian Barry, and Neil Jordan, you know, a lot of people I would, I would really look up to, um, particularly Tom Murphy. And I was, uh, I, I was just sitting there going, oh my God, what if they all hate this? And I'm like, I'm still gonna stand by it. I'm, I'm, I think it's really good. And I've never had that sort of confidence with anything I've written before. Very rarely, anyway. And I could accept the mistakes and the flaws and the problems in it. Um, so I had no, I had faith in the production, and I sort of had a, I was, I hadn't, didn't have as much faith in the play. But then last night, for the first time, I really, really liked it, and and it didn't bother me that everybody hated it. And then it turned out people didn't. I don't think people hated it. I think people liked it. I think it went down well. So it's always hard to tell in press nights because everybody comes up to you and tells you you're wonderful because that's part of the game of the business. But it seemed like people were genuine, you know, and uh, Tom Murphy was very uh, enthusiastic about it, which, which meant a hell of a lot to me. And, and Frank McGuinness as well left, left me a message saying how much he loved it, so, you know, that was great. Um, Cypress Avenue is an Abbey Theatre commission. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the significance of being commissioned by the National Theatre of Ireland. Well, I think I was... Uh, it's weird being but I haven't... When we walked through there where we were going to do this interview, I haven't been through there since I first met Aideen Howard, who was the literary manager here. Who the portico of the Abbey Bar, that's yeah, the yeah. last time. Who commissioned me um, to write this, but also commissioned Half a Glass of Water, which was, which was the short play I wrote for here. And I was convinced, I, I'd come here for the Mayor Whitworth Awards, and I was convinced that um, the Abbey wouldn't even want to meet me, Aideen wouldn't want to meet me, so I think I avoided her 
I think she'd email, she'd say something like, oh, we should get a coffee while you're here. And I, she's just saying that. She's, they're not interested in commissioning me. The, the Abbey would hate my work. Not really knowing anything about the Abbey, just kind of getting convinced. I think when I meet anyone who has like authority over me or the possibility of commissioning me, I, I react with resentment and anger. <laughs> so I was like, before I met her, I was like, she's going to hate. And then she was lovely and she said, I'd written a play called Everything Between Us, which was like my second or third play. And she said she really loved it and she'd like me to write a short play for the Abbey and I was, I was delighted. Um, and then after that, that went on and then, and then shortly after that, a day or two after that, uh, um, the Abbey commissioned me, Aideen commissioned me. Um, so yeah, but it was, it was a strange experience because I was, I, I, I was, uh, I, I was living in Belfast at the time. I was about to move to Glasgow and I was thinking, I'm being commissioned by the National Theatre of Ireland and I don't feel particularly Irish. And how, how what does that mean? Are there implications, like when you get a commission, did you feel the weight of that responsibility that you had to be well, Irish? Well, the thing is, you can't, well, you kind of feel like... that. Vicky Fallon said this to me ages ago when I met her when she was in charge of the National Theatre of Scotland that she said that writers always often feel an obligation when they're commissioned by a national theatre of any country to write a big state of the nation play, and you don't need to do that. And I've never done that, but I sort of thought, how do I, what, what can I say to an audience in Dublin? What does, knowing very little about Dublin, having very little relationship with Dublin or, or the Irish Republic at all, thinking, what is, what is, and so I don't know, I guess it got me thinking about what, what Irishness was in me, what my relationship was to my Irishness, why I didn't consider myself Irish, why there was so much confusion around people I knew in, in Ballybean and, uh, and East Belfast about some people would call themselves Irish, some people wouldn't, some people would say they're Irish and British. There was no cohesive identity. And, and that was, and then somehow I got this thought about a baby being Gerry Adams. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's one thing to have a play about Ulster loyalism at the National Theatre, but it's quite audacious to have the premise of that play being about an infant that's Gerry Adams' doppelganger. I mean, mm -hmm. how do you even how do you even make that pitch to Aideen as well? And, and where does that idea come from? I don't know. I, when you talk about the pitch to Aideen, I sent her this long email about a different play I wanted to write. And then I said, I also have... I also have an idea about um, 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 a baby who's born with the face of Martin McGuinness. Um, and that stayed with me. I was like, where did that come from? I don't even know. How, how do you even name. navigate that? Like, I don't you, know. Because you would think that premise would get you into all sorts of troubles. Like, Well, I never thought of that. I never, it never occurred to me. I, I have a, I have a, I'm blessed and cursed with an inability to think beyond. I can't think into the future about what people are going to think. I never, like, I wouldn't have written half of this play if I had a thought, how are people going to react? I never seem to consider what people might react to, and I never, whenever I have an idea, I, I never think of the consequences. My wife is constantly trying to, <laughs> you know, I sometimes can think, I would love to write a play about uh, Muhammad. And my wife's going, no, no, don't do that. And she, and she has to counsel me against it. And I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll just do it. I'll be fine. And the voice in my head always goes, everything's going to be fine. I'll be fine. And maybe someday I will. And it will be fine. But 
But your wife is your soundy board, I would. And, well, not really. We don't often actually talk about my work or anything. Actually, I talk about my work a lot, and she's sick of listening to me. She's uh, She hasn't read this one yet, I think, when she comes to see it in London. This will She be... hasn't read this one? No, no. She, the first time when she comes to see it in London, this will be, that'll be the first time that she sees it. Um, she couldn't come to Dublin because uh, we, we have a, a newborn baby, ironically enough, who thankfully doesn't look like Jerry Adams. I shouldn't say thankfully, that's very rude to Jerry Adams. Do you think um, Jerry Adams will come to see this? Uh, who knows? I mean, this is, this is part of the, the reason he's, he's the focus of obsession in the play, that, that nobody really knows who he is, you know, and people say, oh, and he should come and say he'd love it. But, well, how do you know that? No, nobody really knows what he thinks or and it's it's the same with any celebrity or public figure or politician people think that they know them but and they have ideas about them you know before i met stephen ray i had ideas about who he was and and you know well let's talk about stephen ray because you mentioned the something borrowed readings that were yeah, here yeah. in 2011 and and it was from that that the collaboration with Stephen came about, was it? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, it was. I, I'm not sure actually. I think I, I, well, all I know is um, when I came up with the idea for Cypress Avenue, I thought Stephen Ray would be fantastic, but I thought there's no way we would ever get him. But I knew he'd done work at the Abbey before. And I thought, well, maybe if it's an Abbey play, he might he'd at least read it. Um, and were you not apprehensive about his reaction casting him in that role? No, I, I thought as long as it was a good part, he would he would be if it was a complex and, and media role, he would be happy to consider it. But I didn't know him at all at the time. I, I I'd only been an admirer of of his acting. And, um, um, but did he pick up? Did Field Day pick up your play, um, Half a Glass? Yeah, yeah, the one that was that was. I I think um, when it was produced here, I I have a suspicion that that. I have a memory that, that he was he was offered it and um, he wasn't available but but he really liked the play um, to, to do the reading here um, and then he he but before Cypress Avenue or anything he or before any of that he'd got in contact with me because he'd read everything between us I think and and he wanted to commission me for field day and and I never mentioned to him at the time that that I'd. I was writing a play for the Abbey with him in mind. I was too scared. I thought it'd be really awkward if he then asked to read it and he didn't like it. And, but I kept sort of mentioning it every time I saw him. And I was quite, it took me a while to sort of get comfortable around him. I was quite intimidated by him for, for a while. Um, but now we, now we, we get along great. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he, he, I'd actually just sent him, he got a group of field day actors together and they were doing a play by Claire Dwyer Hogg and he'd asked to read a play of mine just to introduce the company to my work and I thought I'll just bring half a glass of water because it's only 20 minutes long and I don't want to take up everybody's time and then he read it and he was like no I want to produce this and what's the, the, the storyline of Half Glass Water? I mean, the title wouldn't really imply it's what it's It's a terrible about. title, I don't know it's what I was thinking No, it's not a terrible title, it's a funny title It's mm. uh, it, it, well, it wouldn't lead me to believe the subject no, matter. No, I, I didn't know what to call it, but I, I always had this this vision that there was half a glass of water on the table, um, and that there was there was several references in the play to half the half a glass of water, but they got cut the more the play got redrafted. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a two hander about a, a young man who'd been s- severely sexually abused and tortured as a child. Um, and, and this man he was talking to was, was his friend and mentor. 
uh, and he was uh, counselling him through it. Um, it was funny, you know. It I was, was going to say, I would think your writing always has humour in it, but how do you handle that material? Yeah, it was well until it's revealed that you don't really know they're they're it's a, it's they're talking about sexual abuse until about halfway through the play, so um, that that sort of got a, a pretty rapturous response in the Peacock. Um, but then when Stephen did it at Field Day, it was um, you know people were quite shocked by it. Which they, they weren't it was really a here. reading in the Peacock. Was it was a reading in the Peacock. Production. It was a full production yeah. uh, with Field Day, um, but people were quite taken aback by it. They didn't really know how to how to respond to it, and, and it was a terrific production. So David Ireland, yes. um, if that is your real name, is that your real name? <laughs> that is my real name. That's an unusual name. It's actually not an unusual name for a, a loyalist or unionist. Um, there's, a, there's actually quite a few uh, Irelands and David Irelands in Ballybean. Um, Yes, that is my real name, yes. You're David Ireland, you're born in Belfast, mm-hmm. you live in Scotland, mm-hmm. and you write about Cyprus Avenue. Now, that yeah. is the most location-based sentence I've said in a while, like, <laughs> but can you tell me a bit about your background? Yeah, well, um, starting from the start. Wherever you want to begin. Um, yeah, well, I was, I was, I was born in the sort of Sandy Road, Donegal Road sort of area, and South Belfast, and then... Um, when I was about seven, we moved to Ballybean, which is in the east of Belfast, and um, and and uh, I strangely became interested in in theatre. Don't really remember how that happened, but I did. And it was theatre in particular. It wasn't like film, you know. No, I loved movies. Yeah, movies came first. I loved movies, um, but but then I, I found theatre not long after that. Um, it was I was I was lucky enough to go. Although Ballybean's a pretty rough area, I was I passed my eleven plus and, and I got to a grammar school and and you know I'd, I'd Frank Ormsby was my English teacher who's um, for those who don't know a very great uh, poet and um, uh, the uh, that was the first time I'd had encountered Shakespeare and. I'd heard of Shakespeare, and I was like, I was very intrigued by who this this might be, and and I think it was Julius Caesar was the first play, and I was like, I totally got it straight away. That I didn't find the language difficult. I was like, I remember thinking, oh, this will be really difficult because it's like an old English, and I got it straight away. I understood it straight away. I loved it, and so I wanted to read more of Shakespeare, and and just out of that, I I started going to plays and. Talking about Frank McGinnis being there, I think one of the first plays I, I ever saw was someone who watched over me. Which Stephen originally did. It wasn't. It wasn't the original production. Um, and uh, it was someone who watched over me in Oleana. I remember seeing both those. And I think around the same time, I remember seeing uh, Bad Lieutenant and Reservoir Dogs in the cinema around the same time. And I feel like those, those four things. Someone who watched over me, Oleana, Bad Lieutenant, and Reservoir Dogs all had a, a big impact on me. <laughs> And so then the leap from being a theatre goer and a cinema goer to going to drama school mm-hmm. and like and how did that how did that go at home you know that is there other actors in your family no or? no not at all no I mean there's, there's it was is that something they found strange but but they were generally very supportive um, my mother I always thought my mother would would always had an actress in her I think my my sister Nicola always had an actor, uh, an actress's sort of talent. It was just something they never pursued. 
my, my mother was, um, you know, she loved movies, she loved old movies, and um, I think she sort of, once I said I was going to be an actor, she was convinced I was going to be a movie star, you know. Um, so how no, did was, you view yourself then? How did you see your place oh, God. Well, as an actor? I, 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 well, it's embarrassing, but I wanted to be Jack Nicholson. I wanted to be, like, I wanted to go to the very top. I wanted to be in Hollywood and be a big movie star. And, and I was so, I was obsessed with movies. I was, I was going to movies all the time and, and coming out behaving like the character. I would watch DVDs and, and videos, upset, it wasn't DVDs at the time, it was videos, obsessively, you know, like particularly Kenneth Branagh. Watch like Henry V. I must have watched it a hundred times, and I used to play it and copy. <laughs> I used to like copy what he was doing and look in the mirror and copy him. And and Kenneth Branagh because he was a Northern Ireland fellow as well. Yeah, that was a bit. Yeah, he was. You know, he was an inspiration. It was like somebody I wanted to be. I wanted to be a movie star. I always wanted to be at the RSC as well. I wanted to be like. I kind of thought like I saw these guys like, you know, Ian McKellen and and people like that, and and going all right. Well, like you can you can be in a big Shakespearean actor and then become a big movie star, you know? And I was like, well, there's somebody, Kenneth Branagh, you know, who's... And it was like, around that time when I was a teenager, it was Kenneth Branagh, Liam Neeson and Stephen Ray were the three big actors from Belfast, you know? And I was like, and, and I, uh, you know, I thought, well, there's somebody like, like Kenneth Branagh that I could, you know, he could... I could do that, you know? I so could, you could see that that was possible? It's possible, It wasn't yeah. a huge leap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... So yeah, uh, and then uh, you go to drama school in in yeah. Glasgow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why there? And and, and you what know, did you I, learn I, there? I on my audition, one of the questions they asked me was, um, "Why did you? Why did you not apply to any of the drama schools in Dublin?" And I was so bewildered by the question. I was like, I, and I said to them, "I don't understand why I would apply to drama school in Dublin. It's a foreign country." And it was, I wasn't saying anything controversial, it was just what I thought. And they, were, they, uh, they sort of gasped in horror and then laughed. And I didn't realise I'd said something controversial, I was really surprised. And that disconnection, that comes from, because you would identify yourself as British then? Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah totally. Well, certainly at the time, um, I, would, I wouldn't have considered myself in any way Irish. Um, in fact, it was a surprise to me when people... I went to England for the first time and, and somebody said I was Irish and... It was like, it was like you know being a white man and being called black, uh, and or somebody just misidentifying me, you know. And it's like, but I'm clearly not Irish. Why can this person not tell by my appearance and the way I'm dressed? And it was a real shock to me to be called Irish. And I thought I'm gonna have to have a word with him later and, and, and say to him, listen, I'm not actually Irish, because I think I think in my mind I thought, oh, he must think I'm from Southern Ireland and he can't understand my accent. And of course, it, it, but I then learned over the course of this week I was in, I was about 16 at the time, this week that I was in, in England, that all these people, all these English people in this room regarded me as Irish, and that was a real shock. And then what does that do to you? Because, I mean, I, I know, say, Cypress Avenue is about an identity crisis, but then mm. does that, is that where that well, is, this is the thing. This is, the, is this is from? one of the things that's, that's explored in the play, mm. that... that then it was a case of, oh, they, th they think I'm Irish and they also like me because I'm Irish. They find Irishness charming. And so I, I uh, like many Ulster Protestants, you then abandon your British identity and embrace being Irish because it's getting yeah, attention from girls and it's like, you know, or oh, they love my accent and they want to buy me a drink and all this. So and you weren't conflicted about... 
I know I was. Yeah, I would have been conflicted about it. Yeah, but it was to your benefit. Mm -hmm. I think at one point I got drunk and, and started screaming, "I'm not Irish. I'm British," <laughs> which is a very stereotypically down? Irish thing to do as well. Um, yeah, it was, uh, they were confused. They were just confused. They didn't understand how I could be British. You know, they can. It didn't make sense to them. And uh, interestingly, I had this conversation with Martin McCarty, who's a, a Scottish playwright, and um, and he was uh, he comes from a big Irish Catholic family. His parents were Irish, and he was raised to call himself Irish. And if he ever called himself Scottish, or anybody ever called him Scottish, would say, "No, I'm Irish." And so when he went to England for the first time, he said, "People say oh, you're Scottish," and he'd say, "No, I'm Irish." And they'd say, "Whereabouts in Ireland are you from?" And he'd say, "Well, I'm from Scotland." I said, "Well, you are Scottish." See, he had a parallel experience mm -hmm. in a different th in a different way. Um, interestingly, I was in a production to observe the Sons of Ulster with him, so me and him talked about all of this while we were working on that. Tell me about the writing. Then was the writing yeah. always accompanying while, while you were acting, or and do you uh, remember the first thing you wrote that you? I wrote. I was I was out of work in London. For I'd moved to London. And I, I was out of work and I thought, what I need to do is write. I had no interest or talent for writing. I thought, oh, I'll write a one-man show for myself, just as a showcase. For... And I thought, I'm very good at playing psychopaths. So I, I thought, I wrote a one-man show about um, Lenny Murphy, the Shankle Butcher. And, uh, and strangely enough, people didn't like it. <laughs> And, and then I sort of gave up, I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to, obviously I have no talent for writing, so I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. I was out of work for about three years in Glasgow, and um, I, was, I was living in, uh, in a, a bed set, and my life was going nowhere, and I hadn't had an audition, and nobody, I was, I was unemployed and, and unemployable. And I started writing a play about a... Uh, an out-of-work actor from Belfast who, who lives in Glasgow and goes over to Belfast to audition for a Mel Gibson movie about the Troubles. And that was my first play. Um, and how did that go then? It, was, it went great. It was, the reception to it was rapturous, which I wasn't expecting. I, I, I was hoping that if people kind of thought, it's not a bad first play, you should keep at this, um, that would be fine. But, but it was a 45-minute play at Oran Moor in Glasgow. First thing I'd ever had anything on in front of an audience, and 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 the response was was over the top, you know. And is that then the point where you call yourself a writer, like a legitimate writer? I, I don't. I think it's only now I've started to feel like a legitimate writer. I think it's only last night I was like, oh, I'm. I think I might be a playwright. I think, you know. I feel like I've actually written something I can stand by a hundred percent. You know, that's taken quite a while. Yeah. To get that. Well, it's sort of it's embarrassing to say you're a playwright, I think, or an actor. I used to be embarrassed at saying I was an actor, and I thought being a playwright would be better if I can say to a taxi driver or someone, someone, what do you do for a living? I can say playwright. That's better, but it's not. <laughs> it's gone over to London with the Royal Court in yeah. April. Um, there's one reaction I suppose you're going to get from a Dublin audience. You're going to get another reaction from a London audience. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought of bringing it up to Belfast? Yeah, that, that's been talked about. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I'd be quite keen to see it in Belfast. I think it's, you know, why, why should why should people in Dublin see it and people in London see it, but people who are from the place it's mm. set not see it? Um, yeah, I, I, I would love it to come to Belfast. I'm sure it will. There's a lot, um, I was just reading up about you, and there's a, there's a lot 
being said about the idea that you write, say, at times from a distance that you're living in Glasgow yeah. and that you're writing about Belfast. Um, but the way I was thinking about it was that surely that most writing will come from a state of mind rather than a state of place. Yeah, I think that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a more articulate answer than anything I've said to any journalist who's, who's asked me. Because I don't really know how to answer that question. I feel really weird about living in Glasgow and writing about Belfast because there's a there's an assumption possibly a cliche that, that you write better if you're at a distance, and I'm not sure that's true. Um, but I keep, I keep not meaning to write about the troubles or the peace process, and yet it always seems to creep into my work in some way, even when it's not set in Northern Ireland. Sometimes the play seems like a metaphor for Northern Ireland, and I don't realise it until someone points it out. Um, when, when you write, is it that you're trying to work something out for yourself? Yeah, so there's something David Mamet says about uh, the uh, there's only one reason to write, and that's to bridge the unbearable gap between your conscious and your subconscious. And now that you're a father of two, does yeah. has that changed your perspective or, or how you write? Because I've come to understand to understand yourself better, you have to understand what your parents were like, you know, mm-hmm. where you came mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. So being a parent now yourself. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's too soon to tell because uh, my I think because my my children are very young. I had a meeting with uh, David Gregg lately, and, and he said something interesting about being a father changed his writing because it was he always felt like the audience were he was a child and the audience were looking down on him, judging him. Whereas now, when he writes, he feels like a parent, and the audience are like children, and they only really want to hear a story. Um, and is that a, anything to do with last night? I mean, I, I know you have a two-year-old child, so this yeah. has been... But no, I, I didn't feel like it. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't feel like that at all. Um, but uh, I still felt... I suppose I, I often feel antagonistic towards the audience. When I'm writing and when I'm in the audience, I always feel like, to a certain extent, they're the enemy, which I don't think is healthy, I don't think is mature, but that's the way it is. Um, and so explain that a bit, being antagonistic, because does, does that mean that you would write to provoke a reaction? I don't, not consciously, no, I don't, I don't, you know, people think that I'm doing that a lot of the time, but I don't, it's like people, people feel shocked, so therefore they go, oh, he's just trying to shock me, which is never the intention, I don't think, but then sometimes we don't really know our real intentions. Um, There's a point in Cypress Avenue where, you know, you're laughing for like three quarters of it, and then I was in at the dress and I caught myself, and I just... I stopped laughing. And you, ha- I've I read something that you had said that when the laughter stops, you, you don't know how to measure whether it's good or not. Yeah, yeah. How does that silence fit, sit with you? It makes me uncomfortable. I, I, I'm most comfortable when an audience are laughing hysterically. And that's what I love to hear. And that's the reaction I most love in an audience. Um, so it makes me uncomfortable. But but then last night, that was the first time I thought, when the audience were silent, I was thinking, well, maybe there's something in this. Maybe maybe silence is is okay. Sometimes it sounds as if, when you talk about how you write, it's as if the characters have a life of their own and that you can't control them. Yeah. It's like so when you're talking about not trying to provoke an audience, uh, the character just did that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't really understand it, but but yeah, I, I a lot of the time I seem to have no control over 
what the character was doing. Like Slim was fr- actually that whole section from the um, the monologue that's the sort of centre of the play. I think I like wrote that in one afternoon, and it just poured out of me. It came completely from my subconscious. This, I think it was Saul Bellow said, um, you never have to rewrite anything that you wake up to write at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, that was a bit like that, although it was three o'clock in the afternoon I wrote it. But it's, it sort of just came, it came fully formed. That In fact, m- much of this play just came fully formed, around about two thirds of it, you know. And do you ever question where this comes from? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I sometimes think it... Seriously, it's, I sometimes think it comes from either God or the devil. Um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, and I read... I'm a big fan of Norman Mailer, and he, um, he believes in that. He believes that your, your work always comes from God or the devil and that you have to be at peace with both of them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it, there's also there's something David Mamet said about when people say to him where do you get your ideas from and you say well I, so I read this article in the newspaper really the real answer is I don't know and it terrifies me is the real answer where will you go next um, is there any ideas percolating at the moment yeah I have like a hundred ideas I've no, I've no idea do you censor your ideas do you so when an idea comes into, into your head it sounds as if that you just go with it and that you don't have a filter I just I feel like you know like at the start of the play when Bridget the therapist says this is a safe space, a space where you can say anything. I sort of feel like that way about theatre. It's like, it's, it's just a play. I'm, I've, I've written a scene for a play. I mean, we've talked about censorship. I've written a scene for a play, and I think the scene's really good. And it's very... It's very controversial, but, and I have no problem with the scene, but I just don't know whether or not to continue with the play. And is that how most plays or ideas come to you as in just like a flash of a scene and then from there you build around it? Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, I think so. I, I very rarely have an idea of how a play is going to end or how it's going to be structured. or And that's getting worse as I get more experienced or older. I feel like I've, I feel like I've got more choices. It's like there's... I get an idea for a play and I think now because I know more, it's like, well, there's actually about a hundred ways to tell this story, whereas I thought there was only one way to tell the story before. And so now I'm sort of there's a danger that you get paralysed by your choices. And now that you have more choices, yeah, like does that res- does that restrain you? Because yeah. you know you have the floor uh, of the National Theatre of Ireland. You go over to the Royal Court, so really, like the world is your oyster. So now do you have to? Well, be... we'll see. We've yet to see <laughs> we'll the play's going to be received. Say, yeah, uh, we'll. Uh... But I suppose with that success, does that in that would inhibit you because now you know now you're a name and you're like well if that's true that would be very nice but I don't know if that is true yet um, it certainly feels like with it, having a play on at the Abbey and the Royal Court does shift you up a gear you know in terms of how you're perceived but only in the world of theatre which is very tiny you know like nobody outside of theatre cares those labels would that define you do you know uh, I suppose what I'm tr- I'm thinking just on my feet here about how how a play on at the Abbey and a play at the Royal Court that would kind of yeah would put you in a certain stream do you mm-hmm. know and I'm wondering yeah would, would that dilute any of your intentions I suppose on paper I, I mean I certainly wouldn't if, if you're asking would, uh, would I become more I don't know 
like if it, in terms of diluting, would it dilute? Would it make me think twice about saying something because it's a bigger platform? I don't think so. Because I, I don't think I have. Unfortunately, I don't have that capability. I can't seem to. Uh, I can't seem to write in a in a in any other way.